0: Do remain standing and turning your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. Let me pray for us before I read God's Word. Gracious God, we do pray that you would show us your grace this evening by helping us to understand this text clearly and to have the hope of Christ firmly fixed in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah chapter 3, hear now the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you've heard the name Francis Schaeffer, then you are probably familiar with his book, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Pick it up, read it, and weep. Weep for our own nation, our nation even now. Although he wasn't a prophet, he was a man well-versed in his time and seasons, And he was able to see the various trends and identify the trajectory of our nation. And it was not a pleasant one. But it wasn't just Schaeffer, the Christian philosopher, who saw the eventual decline of the United States. He leaned on the work of Edward Gibbon, who wrote the famous book, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. In other words, there are certain factors that, if left unstopped, will lead to the ruin of a nation. Without detailing the five factors that highlight a nation's self-destruction, I'll just list them here. The first is a mounting love of show and luxury. The second is a widening gap between the rich and the poor. The third is an obsession with sex. The fourth is a freakishness in the arts masquerading as originality. And the fifth is an increased desire to live off the state. As those factors touch the Roman Empire, who of us can deny that every one of these is prevalent and pervasive in our own nation? If left unchecked, the nation is doomed to destruction. But, by grace, there is always hope for any given nation. It is never too late until it is. And before it's too late, there is a call to repent. This evening, we come in this text to a watershed, a a turning point in the narrative, a turning point in the history of the nation Nineveh. It may be helpful for us just to be reminded of where we've been in the last two chapters, the first three sermons in this um, series. First, we saw that when the prophet flees, there is no hope of salvation for the world. But when the Christ stays and fights, there is all the hope of salvation for the world. Second, we learned that when the prophet flees, God uses the world to shame him. We saw how the Gentiles put Israel to shame in the person of Jonah. But when Christ is fixed on his mission, God gives grace to the Gentiles. And third, in chapter two, we heard the distress cries of the prophet in Sheol for his own salvation. But when Christ cried out in distress on the cross, it was for our salvation. We see then the ever-widening arms of grace that embrace both Israelite and Gentile. The arms are even more outstretched here in chapter 3 in this book of Jonah. And the arms are both outstretched and unstoppable. We might say they're, they're coming in for a big hug. When God sets his saving grace on a nation, there is no stopping him. That is what we see here in this text. God always gets his man. So we'll move in this text from God's work on the man to his work on the nation. Let us consider God's grace to Jonah. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, good Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So as we saw last time in the book of Jonah, the great fish was Jonah's deliverance. It was his rescue. Wading about in the ocean of God's wrath, descending deeper and deeper into Sheol, the waters choking Jonah and the ocean floor's weeds wrapping about his head, Jonah despaired of life, looked upward, looked templeward, and saw that salvation belonged to the Lord. What a great confession of faith he expressed salvation belongs to the lord and this grace of salvation came to jonah and it was god's second chance for the prophet that's so what you notice in verse 1 it says the word lord came to jonah the second time he already had it the first time and he didn't consider it well and sometimes even against our own words we parents do need to repeat ourselves don't we we say a wholehearted uh, yes to obey right away, of course, but sometimes our child just doesn't hear us, and sometimes we think that they truly did hear us, and then we discipline them accordingly, but sometimes we speak, and they really didn't hear us, and that's embarrassing, isn't it? Children are nodding their heads, Yes. This, however, was not the case with Jonah. Jonah couldn't say, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't hear you. What was that again? What was that message you wanted me to give to the Ninevites? He can't do that. He, he doesn't have that excuse like some children from time to time have. No, he clearly heard the word of the Lord, and he clearly ignored the word of the Lord. More than that, he, he flat out disobeyed God's call. And went with the opposite direction, you recall. Nevertheless, the Lord, whose holy words were casually ignored, calls Jonah again. He gives his prophet another chance. Jonah was not the first man to receive a second chance on life from God. The Bible is full of men and women whom God has given chance after chance to. Consider Abraham. Abraham lied before God, laughed in his face. After all, their child Isaac was named, he laughs because he laughed and Sarah laughed. Laughed in his face, but God still called Abraham. God still used Abraham to be the father of many nations. Or consider Jacob, he cheated his brother out of his inheritance. He questioned God, but God still built a whole nation out of Jacob made his name Israel, gave him 12 sons, 12 tribes. Or David, he was adulterous, mendacious, and murderous. But we remember him as a man after God's own heart because God didn't give up on giving grace to David. Or likewise, Moses, he questioned his calling, asked God that Moses would die. Just take my life away, please, God. God still used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, to lead them to the promised land, to give them the law. Or Elijah, he successfully demolished idolatry, but still despaired of life, asked to die. But still, God was not done with Elijah and would use him mightily for more time. Or consider Peter, he denied Jesus for crying out loud, literally, three times but Jesus restored him three times and made him a useful servant in the life of the church. Or Paul, he sought to terminate Christians, and he thought he was doing a godly service to his God. But God changed his heart, gave him a 180, and has made him Super useful in the church. Or consider the disciples. They were often slow to understand. They were sometimes hard of heart. And sometimes they would do the very opposite of what Christ calls for in his kingdom. But God used them mightily. Or Mark. He left Paul at an important missionary juncture. But God brought Mark back to Paul near the end of Paul's life. Or Onesimus, as we considered the book of Philemon a few weeks ago. He abandoned his master, Philemon, and he ran away. But God, through Paul, brought Onesimus to Philemon. And no longer was there the, the master-servant relationship, but there was the brotherly relationship. I could go on and on of all of the examples of God giving grace to his people. A second chance. God always gets his man for salvation, and he gives grace after grace each day. All the days. And you know this daily grace, this second chance, this third chance, this infinite expression of grace. For each day we wake up to new morning mercies, and each night fall asleep on a pillow of promises stuffed with grace. Have you considered God's grace to Jonah? Have you consider God's grace to you. How many chances? On life has God given you. If you've lived a long time, or really any amount of time, if you are the kind that would reflect on your life, surely you know that God has spared you time and again of your own sinful devices, how he has poured his grace upon you time and again. He does it every single day. Consider Jonah's duty Let's remember what Jonah did here in verse 3. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So remember this verse in light of chapter 1, verse 3. The language is very similar. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jonah rose to flee. He got up to get out to flee from the presence of God and go to Tarshish. But here it says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, and he did so according to the word of the Lord. In other words, Jonah obeys. God has given him a second chance, and by grace, Jonah takes it, and he does do what God told him to do. And by this, God shows us that whenever he calls us to act, we rise to action. It is our responsibility to act. Whenever he issues his grace-saturated commands, it is our responsibility to rise to action. Grace does not give us license to shirk our God-given calls and responsibilities. We don't say, shall we go on sinning, so that the grace may abound, may it never be. Instead, grace enables us to move out in obedience to our Father who loves us. Now, I certainly never think that when I tell my children to do something, I am in some way gauging my love for them and my commitment to them based on their performance. And I hope you don't either. Indeed, when I ask them to do something and I realize that they need my help, I give it. And of course, sometimes they need to have that fine line of challenging them, testing them, seeing if they really can do it. But sometimes you give your child the task that Turns out, he or she can't do. And what do you do? You're supposed to help them. Show them the way. Our Father in heaven does not base his love on our fulfillment of his call. And neither does he put us in a position to work in our own feeble strength. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are insufficient. And he loves to give grace for the day. His love forever abides on us. And his spirit-wrought grace enables us to follow him just like it did with Jonah. But I want you to consider God's power despite Jonah. Yes, Jonah does obey. He does according to the word of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, go in a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, if Jonah was in an evangelism class, how would we rate this? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his message. He comes into the city. 40 days. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. We might compare his efforts to those of people who are standing on a sidewalk announcing people's coming destruction. Or merely holding up a sign saying, You're gonna die. It's like bare bones message. The prophet here is not a long winded prophet. His words are only five words in Hebrew. And notice, he doesn't mention the Lord as the source issuing the warning. He doesn't mention the Lord as the cause of the impending calamity. And he doesn't mention the Lord as the one to turn to for life. He'd probably get an F in evangelism explosion. Nevertheless, the focus is is not on Jonah's imperfect proclamation, but on God's power of transformation. God uses even the shortest proclamation of his word for wide transformation. Do you see that? The result was remarkable, and all the more remarkable because of the lackluster proclamation. The people believed, it says. They called for a fast. And it wasn't just a few people. It wasn't a select class of people. This is generally the people. And this, again, is is evidence that it is not man, but it is God who changes the hearts of man. It wasn't up to Jonah to change the hearts of these Ninevites. And God can do quite a bit, can work mightily in so feeble a proclamation. Now, this does not give us license to adopt a minimalist approach to evangelism, to giving the gospel But it should comfort us, nevertheless. You may not have been able to share everything you wanted to to that person, but God is powerful. You may have regretted getting some of the stories or some of the facts wrong as you are charting the the history of redemption, as you are charting God's story. You might have bungled some things up a little bit. might be kicking yourself. That's okay. God is powerful. You may have wondered whether the 100th time would have been the time that they would hear it and they would believe, but for some reason you didn't give it and now it is too late. But you know what? God is powerful. You may have leaned too much on the curse of their sin rather than on the beauty of Christ, but God is powerful. I recently heard a story of an adult non communing child, one who was raised in the church, but who hadn't trusted in Christ for decades. But one day, when his mother, for the umpteenth time, shared even just a bit of scripture, and without intentionally evangelizing her son, that was all it took for God to take hold of his heart. Let us never despise even the smallest of gospel presentations. We are weak but God is powerful. Do we really believe that the word of the Lord will not return unto him void? Yes, let us be faithful. Let us give the robust proclamation of the gospel. Let us proclaim the holiness of God, the wickedness of man, and the beauty of salvation in Jesus Christ, in him alone. It's not a very difficult message to proclaim, but let us trust in our Lord, that He will do with what we give the people. He will do wonderful things, as He did here with Nineveh. God always gets His man, and God always gets His nation. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And I want us to explore repentance here true repentance. We see that very clearly in these verses, verses 5 and following. It is immediate repentance. You compare their responses here to the Gentile mariner's response back in chapter 1. Immediately, the men in the boat, you recall, they dropped to their knees, they cried out to the Lord, they learned that it was the Lord who caused their hearts to tremble, and with the gift of reverence, they called out to the Lord, offered a sacrifice, and made vows to the Lord of heavens and seas. And in both cases, in chapter one and here in chapter three, they obeyed right away. They repented immediately. No sooner does the proclamation go out and they hear it in their hearts than they say yes. I believe in the Lord. I fear the Lord. Just like the mariners had done. Just like the ship had obeyed as it threatened to, um, to break under the divine hand. Just like the great fish that went wherever the Lord had directed it. As I mentioned last time, it seems like everyone obeys right away except for Jonah. Everyone is an example here and everything is an example here of immediate repentance, immediate obedience, immediate turning away from evil and turning to good. Would that God's own people had that lesson firmly fixed in their hearts. Sometimes we need to learn that lesson through the world as God, as God changes uh, people from darkness to light. Look at verse 4 with me. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No sooner does Jonah set his foot on Assyrian soil than do the people repent. He has just begun and only made it a third of the way, and the people are all in. Through the Ninevites, God is showing his prophet and all of us his people, That immediate repentance is the way to proceed when we hear God's call, his conviction of sin. Now, will parents forgive their child, who, after many pleas, eventually repents? Of course. But that doesn't mean that that is the the best way to move forward when mom and dad show you your sin. We don't want to have to tell you 38 times that you did something wrong. We want to tell you once, and we want God's Spirit to work in your heart, and you say, yes, you're right, Mom, you're right, Dad. I did that thing, I said that thing, and that was wrong, forgive me. Likewise, although God will forgive, even after many pleas to repent, and after many chances, Exhibit 1, Jonah. Immediate repentance is the best medicine for the soul. Immediate repentance is... Biblical repentance. And if you can handle a bit of cheesiness, we can say that nationwide they're on God's side. Sorry, I had to. It's hard to resist these. Verse 6 The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Although Jonah was only a third, only a third of Nineveh before the people, this does not mean that he stopped after making partial inroads. Indeed, he kept going, and so did the message. The word of God reached every crevice of Nineveh. And God did not care that only a third of Nineveh heard his word of judgment and salvation. That wasn't good enough for God. He wanted all of Nineveh to hear. The Lord God, the maker and sustainer of all nations, of all Ninevites here, called for all of them to repent. And by God's grace, from one end of the city to the other, they heard and they believed and they fasted. Likewise, we desire, do we not, that God would cause all of our nation to know the threat of his judgment, but not to end there, not to end with this government, this nation will be overthrown in however many days but also to know the only remedy available to remove this threat of judgment. Christ. Christ as King. Christ as Lord. Christ as Savior. We want nationwide repentance. It's nationwide repentance, it's immediate repentance, but it's also top-to-bottom repentance. No class of creation is removed from the equation. No one's ears are stopped here. The word eventually reaches the king's ears, and when we read this, we rejoice from the truth of Proverbs 21:1: that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This earthly king bows humbly in repentance to the king over all, and then he calls everyone to repentance. He, in fact, makes publication of the message of the Lord far and wide. And the nation was the better because of the king's decree. And that in itself is a whole other sermon. But as we read earlier, it wasn't just the king, it was the people who, hearing the message of Jonah, believe and repent. You notice another intriguing factor here is that the, the king includes even the animals in this nationwide fast. Verse 7, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. The king knew what perhaps too many Christians seem to forget or often neglect, that the animal kingdom is bound up in God's kingdom. The Noahic covenant tells you that. God cares for the beasts. God cares for his own creation. Yes, even those that are not his image. He cares for them, and they are part of the future restoration of the new heavens and earth. When man sinned, his sin through all of creation in a tailspin, downward to death. Even now, all of creation, Paul says, groans for the adoption of the sons of God. And when man is glorified with redemptive bodies, the creator will not forget his beasts. He will not forget the birds of the air. He will not forget the cattle. He won't forget any of his creation. From Top to the bottom. From the king, the one who is in charge over all, to the lowly animals. God is giving a full restoration here. He's giving us at least a taste of eventually a full restoration of what God's powerful word does to a nation. And I wonder if you noticed the glimpses of both former and future glories in this text. The former is admittedly very subtle. But this text alludes to the Garden of Eden. Not by name. You don't see the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. You don't see the Garden of Eden in any of these four chapters of Jonah. But you must remember that this is the same area as the Garden of Eden. I'm not saying I know exactly where the Garden of Eden was, (laughs) Many have tried to identify, pinpoint it, but uh, it's a fool's errand. But Nineveh and the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, were in the territory of the Garden of Eden. You can read that in Genesis 1 and 2. And So here is a subtle allusion back to the Garden, to the calm, to the time when there was a, a, a communion with God and man and God and creation. But there's more than that. Because the the goal that God has for the world isn't a return to Eden, but it is to uh, usher in a greater life, a greater existence than what the what Eden was going to offer. And so there is an illusion here, a glimpse of future glories. Notice the language, from the greatest of them to the least of them, in verse five. That language should be familiar to you, especially if you know your new covenant, if you know God's words to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Or just read all of Jeremiah, and you will see this phrase over and over again. But in 31 verse 34, it says, They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so throughout Jeremiah, this phrase is used to speak of all groups of people king, master, slave, man, woman, child, all of the people. The Lord God, the giver of repentance, connects here the original creation with the new creation. This is a glimpse of a new covenant reality already applied in seed form in Nineveh. Here is a glimpse of God's great extent of great grace to the nations, not just to Nineveh. Let me be more clear. What God does to Nineveh here is temporary. But it is a wait it is as an indication of what is to come fuller. It is temporary as we'll see through the prophetic book of Nahum in January, because Nahum is the other prophetic book that addresses the Ninevites, and there is a woe unlifted, and there is destruction coming because of how the nation conducted itself, even after this beautiful word uh, of transformation. But as you read, as you read the prophets, st- li- live in the prophets, read the prophets more and more. It's an often neglected section. Even the, the the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, there's so much hope in there. Oftentimes we think, wow, there's just a lot of doom and gloom. And there is quite a bit of that. There is destruction that's coming. But there is much more hope. And that hope is not fully realized in the nations hundreds of years before. It's fully realized in the future. What happens here in part, to Nineveh, is what we should expect for the whole world as God continues to work in his creation. Immediate, nationwide, top-to-bottom repentance is biblical repentance. Look at verses uh, 8 and 9, the second part of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is true biblical repentance as we see in their avoidance of evil. You are not truly repentant if you continue to do the evil thing that you say you just repented of. It's different from struggling, of course. You can struggle against sin, but the fact is you're struggling. You're fighting against that sin. But sometimes we say that we repent, and really we don't mean it. We just return to what we were doing. We return to those sinful habits. We continue to give ourselves over to that besetting sin. But here we see very clearly that one marker of biblical repentance is the avoidance of evil. The Ninevites already had the moral law of God written on their hearts. They had it because they are image bearers. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that there is that moral law of God implanted in the hearts of everyone. Now, this text does not tell us exactly what evil they chose to avoid, what they were seeking to avoid altogether. The word of judgment to them was not based on particular Mosaic requirements. God was not holding Nineveh accountable to all of the Mosaic specifications, but He was holding them accountable to the moral law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Just like He had held the land of Canaan, accountable to the moral law of God, not to all of the Mosaic stipulations. The moral law of God that everyone has by virtue of being an image-bearer. And so, quickened by the Spirit of God, the moral, law, uh, the, the moral compass kicks in, and they, they know what is evil, and they seek to avoid it. That is a marker of biblical repentance. Another, remark, another marker is the reliance on God's grace. When you repent, you realize that you need God's grace. You realize that you are not your own Savior, that you are insufficient. Notice, it says verse 9 who knows? That's what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? The sad thing is, Jonah knew. And we're going to see that next time. Jonah knew, and that's why he's so angry at God. And I, I cannot recommend enough that you come to the last sermon on Jonah 4 uh, next time, in a couple weeks. I hope all of us in the morning can, can come back in the evening. It is that important a message it really does reveal, uh, helps us to see our own hearts, uh, helps us to see our, our own bitterness, our own anger, our own compassionless hearts from time to time. But Jonah knew, and he was mad at God. That's why he ran away from God. He knew God would relent. He knew God would turn from the disaster that he had intended, and he did not want that for Nineveh. Of course, the king of Nineveh wanted that for the king of Nineveh and all Ninevites. But God can more than compensate for Jonah's weaknesses. And I read this text, I think, a couple sermons ago. In Jeremiah eighteen seven and 8, we have a promise from God that must have been well known among the prophets. It says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. In other words, if there's a, a nation that's heading the wrong direction and God calls them to repent and they do, God relents. God doesn't lead to destruction, lead that, that uh, nation to destruction anymore. And the Ninevite king's response mirrors that of the great king David. You remember that episode between uh, uh, Nathan and then the, the servants and David in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, Remember, King David had sinned grievously. He had slept with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He had sent Uriah on the front lines, the battle, and Uriah had been killed. And the Lord told David that he was going to lose that son that was going to be born to him and Bathsheba. And you remember that struggle that David had with the Lord. He he fasted. He wasn't eating. He um, was just all day, all night praying to God. And he says to those the men who were confused that he had gotten up and started. he washed and he had begun to eat, David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. He was relying on the grace of God. But God didn't didn't owe David grace then. He never owes anyone grace. And it's his prerogative to give and to take away, and in that case, he took away. But the posture is to be the same. Who knows? Maybe God will relent. But we have that promise in Scripture over and over again. You confess, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not, you may be saved. It's not, well, let's let's see how how you do, and then a few years, God will will see if you're really savable. I don't have that message at all. It's repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your house, you and your nation will be saved. Such reliance on God's grace is to be our heart. When we hear the effect that our sin has on ourselves, when we see the effect that that our sin has on others, and we acknowledge the uh, the offense that our sin has before the Holy God. Look at verse 10 here. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Divine relenting is based on genuine repentance, and that is good news. That is great hope for all. What is good for the goose is good for the gander, as they say. And what is good for Jonah is good for Nineveh. And what is good and true for Nineveh in the Old Covenant is to be our holy new covenant expectation and our fervent prayer for our nation. What happened in Nineveh was just a taste. And remember, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And if there was great grace extended to this nation, surely there will be greater grace extended not just to this, but to other nations as the gospel goes out. Does it look bleak here and in other nations? Absolutely. If we're realists, we know it doesn't look very good. We scratch our heads and wonder why we have to talk with people about basic biology, about what a man is, about what a woman is, and proper marital relationships, and things of justice, righteousness. Boggles the mind why we have to have some foundational questions. That's okay. We'll just have them and turn people to the Bible. And we might throw up our hands and say, that person's a lost cause. This this town's a lost cause. This city, this state, this nation is a lost cause. But who are we to say that? Surely Jonah thought that of Nineveh, and God corrected him, didn't he? Don't you dare think that they're a lost cause, because God is still in it. God is still working. We can move from a mounting love of show and luxury to being overwhelmed by the love of God. We can go from a widening gap between the rich and the poor to all knowing the riches of Christ. We can move from an obsession with sex to a hitherto unknown intimacy with Christ. We can move from a freakishness in the arts, masquerading as originality, to the purity of the image of God in man and the orderliness and goodness of God's creation. We can move from an increased desire to live off the state to a dependence to live off the resources of God's kingdom. All this can and we pray will happen one day. God is powerful, God is gracious. And when God has put his sights on a man, on a family, on a church, on a nation, there is no one, there is nothing stopping him. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this word of hope from Jonah chapter 3, hope of, of wide transformation, of deep transformation. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, transform us more and more. Deeper and deeper. And that you would transform our families. That the gospel would take root and the gospel would grow and bear much fruit in our lives, in our families' lives, in our church's life, in our city's life, our state's life, our nation's life. We pray, Lord, that as you did to the king of Nineveh, you would do to our nation, to our government. Convert hearts, Lord. Transform them for your glory. And may we say, by wisdom, King's reign. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.